you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, where you're going to read verse 13 all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 2, 3. Our text this evening is just verse 17 to 21. Considering the first string of imperatives that Peter brings into his letter to the Christian church, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, as we Open your word as we consider uh, the way that it cuts us to the bone and speaks uh, grace and mercy to us in Christ Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. The last time that we were in Peter, I suggested that there's a a very common misconception about the Bible, that it's just a book about do's and don'ts. That it just makes people feel like a bad person. I want to pick up this theme again. I want to pick this up because I don't think it's uncommon for someone to list how horrible they felt inside the church. That when they grew up inside the church, all that they felt was as though they were a horrible person. But now that they've left the church, they've come to truly accept who they are. Now certainly this is symptomatic of the times that we live in, but I think... Uh, One of the problems that underlies this kind of perception is at base a misunderstanding of the gospel itself 
and the ordinances or the statutes or the laws that are swept up into its proclamation and into its essence. The Bible incorporates and brings with it a series of commands that go forth from the reality that it preaches grace. That uh, The problem, though, is that this perspective on the Bible, that it's just a list of do's and don'ts, isn't just out there in the world. It's in here, too. One of the common uh, themes of conversations I've had with numerous folks over the years is their concern for young people and that they understand as they grow up within the church why we live the way that we do and why we obey God's law, why we receive God's law. Their concern is for a particularly dangerous spirit that can, that can be adopted by young people. It goes something like this. I'll, I'll, I'll live like I'm supposed to publicly and until I get to college, and then I can give up the hoax because it's just a bunch of rules that, that don't really matter. And I'm not, uh, I'm not bashing simply young people. It's not just young folks that struggle with this misperception and misunderstanding or struggle to receive the law of God as it comes to us in the gospel properly. A number of years ago, I read a book, The Whole Christ, which I would commend to you, and there are a prominent theologian of our day argues that there can be a, a whole attitude, a whole, uh, a whole perception of the heart that views the law of God as, uh, in a very negative manner. He calls it an antinomian spirit, an anti-law spirit. And this is, express, this is, this is expressly distinct from a, a verbatim doctrine that teaches against the law. It's a spirit that begins to possess our perception of God's law as it comes to us. And this happens because we, we really don't understand, as this theologian argues, the nature of the gospel properly. But I think that Peter expresses statute or ordinance or law very beautifully for us in this passage today. And he does so, I think, in an unmistakable way for us to miss. In so doing, he's carrying on with the basic instructions for pilgrims in what is now the second set. Last time we saw, he said, uh, he said, look to Jesus, put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus. Don't be conformed to your former passions, but be holy, for God is holy. This week, it's actually even more simple than that. Conduct yourselves with fear. Now, it's not just conduct yourselves with fear, though, but conduct yourselves with fear for three reasons. First, because God is our fatherly judge. Second, because we are pilgrims redeemed from the useless ways of our forefathers. And third, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has paid the costly price for you. And so we'll look at that this evening in three ways. The first, we conduct ourselves with fear because the fatherly judge. The second, because we're ransomed pilgrims. And the third, because of the costly blood. Fatherly judge, ransomed pilgrim, and the costly blood. So first, the fatherly judge. We've already noted the command that permeates this section of the text is found in verse 17 when Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear. Embedded into this command is the very reason for it. And it's this conditional statement. If, if we are those who call on God, who is an impartial judge, as father then we ought to conduct ourselves 
with fear. I think this is a, a very interesting and a very unique way for Peter to set up this command. Why? Well, because what does God's identity as Father, let alone an impartial judge, have to do with our fearful conduct before Him? What does God's identity as a Father, let alone an impartial judge, have to do with our fearful conduct before Him? Well, we need to begin with the notion of a Father as it's rooted and played out in the ancient world. The role of the father, I think, in American culture is actually quite toned down in terms of the respect and the authority that he has, especially when it comes to dictating behavior and adjudicating and dispensing of judgment. I had a Nigerian, a Nigerian friend who I spent many years with in college who was appalled by the way that, uh, of the nature of the relationship between parents and their children in America. In Nigeria, the father is the, the domine. He is completely in control. He is revered above all. His word is final. There is no backtalk. There is no disrespect. And this is very similar to Greco-Roman society and the hierarchy of society that they had. The father held the highest rank. He held almost a, a divine figure. It was his duty to command, to teach, and to arbitrate, and his role was to be more respected than even a judge's who would dispense rewards or punishments. In the Old Testament, this is seen quite clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 21, when should a son uh, exhibit an extended period of rebellion, he would be brought by his father, father and his mother to the city gates, who on their word of his rebellion and drunken behavior, the son would be put, uh, put to the stone. But Peter is, is also, while he's speaking to this context where fathers are viewed as these incredibly revered figures, the, the pater familias, he's also speaking to those who live in a Roman context where the court did indeed play a very prominent role. This is important to pick up on because as one of my professors in seminary liked to say, Caesar is not very gracious, he bears the sword. And I might add, in the context of our text today, Caesar is far less gracious, he's far less even-tempered, and he's far less interested in ruling impartially and in, in reading the hearts of the people involved than a father would be. So he turns out to be a far less impartial judge and an adjudicator than one's own father. Now, typically, when we, when we hear that God is our judge, who judges as our father impartially, it's not very comforting to us. It might actually draw us to a bit of dread, a bit of, a bit of terror, a bit of fear, which seems to be, in, in verse 17, the very thing that Peter commands. And so, one commentator notes, he says, our knowledge of him as father must not dispel our dread of him as our judge. Our knowledge of him as our father must not dispel our dread of him as our judge. I believe fairly strongly that this is wrong. Immediately what hits the back of my mind when I read, when I read something like that is Romans 8. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and Hebrews 4. 
we may come boldly into his throne of grace for mercy and grace in a time of need. I think that's wrong. We don't have dread of him as our judge. It is precisely actually because we call on him as our father that we don't tremble before him in uncertain terror and dread, but instead we we trust ourselves uh, to his care and his wisdom as an impartial judge. A good example of this might be that Simply because we have our license, it doesn't mean that we are careless in the way that we go, go about driving an incredibly heavy metal vehicle. We have a, a sincere and reverent fear for the, the danger that's possessed by the activity that we're partaking of. And this, kind of this kind of fear or this kind of dread is different than what Scripture means when it calls us to fear the Lord. There's a wrong kind of fear for the people of God. That kind of fear is actually characterized uh, is a justified terror for those who don't call on Him as Father. If God is not your Father, you you ought rightly tremble before Him. You should be shaking in your sheets. But the right kind for the people of God, the right kind for those who do call on Him as Father is the kind that respects him in the same way that ancient cultures respected and revered their fathers, but to an infinite degree. We revere him. We have a sincere and holy fear of him. It's filial. So when Peter says, our father judges us as impartial judge, what that means is that God does not judge based upon appearance, but he reads the heart. It's not associated with terror. It's actually associated with trust. He is our impartial judge, his father, who cares and is concerned to read our hearts. This is demonstrated in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Do not look upon his appearance or on the height of his stature, Samuel, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So as a judge who is our father, he doesn't play favorites, but he is perfectly consistent on the basis of his justice and infinite wisdom. That's different from an earthly judge or an earthly father who cannot read our hearts. A judge might give the wrong edict or an unjust edict or statute or judgment. He might not be concerned when he renders his judgment to know your heart behind what you did. A father may play favorites. He may coddle you out of pity in a time of need. He may lose his temper and lash out. He may discipline you improperly and he cannot read your heart. And oftentimes it may not be his concern to understand the reason behind why you did what you did, whether it was right or wrong. But God looks at each of his children in all of their circumstances and he judges their hearts no matter what they do or what they have or how they do what they do. That's important, I think, for us to understand as pilgrims in the day of small things. And the question that I came to this text with is, how is it comforting to us 
and motivating to us that God is our fatherly and impartial judge. We might be apt to make excuses as we go about our lives in these days of small things. We might look at what our neighbors have and the provisions that they have and we say, well, my performance is okay because I'm, I'm doing well with what I've got. I don't really need to do more. Or we might look at other people and their outward display of behavior and we might think that they're better than than us as we judge their behavior, but we have no idea the condition of their heart. And to each of these, it's kind of sidelined by the reality that God actually sees each and every one of our hearts and He desires the same thing from each one. That you would be a good steward of that which He has given you in these days of small things while we're pilgrims in the wilderness. For he judges the heart, not the circumstances. And so what we should instead be focused on and comforted by is that God does indeed judge impartially as our Father. But why does it matter that God judges the heart impartially when Peter calls us to conduct ourselves as pilgrims with fear? What does fear have to do with it? Deuteronomy 6. These are the commandments, the decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Ding, 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 pilgrim language. So that you, the the children and their children after them, may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. How? By keeping all of his decrees and commandments that I give to you, and so that you may enjoy long life. So how does this passage say, as pilgrims waiting to cross the Jordan, we fear the Lord by keeping all of his decrees? So it actually turns out to be quite comforting that God looks upon the heart, that he does not play favorites or look only upon our outward actions, because if fearing him is keeping all of his decrees, What's the testimony of our lives? Filthy rags. What's more is if it's simply outward action, it's devoid of any true godliness. True obedience, true righteous conduct, as our catechisms expand, is done for the right reason to the glory of God and for the love of God. So for the high school student or for the person just going through the motions, what he desires is not mechanical religion. Sacrifices and offerings I have not desired. He desires a broken and contrite heart that renders obedience with a true heart. And we do this simply because he is our father that we call upon as our Lord taught us to pray. It's the same father. We do this because our Father operates as impartial judge who looks upon the heart in the midst of our failures and our shortcomings. And He accepts them on the basis of a true and righteous heart. In Christ Jesus, rags turn to riches. We do this because, as Ed Clowney put it, 
awe for the Father does not drive us away from Him, but it drives us to His care and compassion. So for Peter, the proof is in the pudding when he looks at the history of Israel and what God the Father had done in Israel, for Israel, and to Israel. All he sees is faithful, compassionate, impartial judge who looks upon the heart and desires true, contrite hearts from his people, as we saw this morning in Joel. That he would come to their defense for them when they had a contrite heart, and he would write in, in judgment out against them when they failed. Now this brings us to the second reason, the ransomed pilgrim, which we find in verse 18, if you look at that with me now. There Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. <clears throat> Here we find an inherent contrast between the one who is now our father as exiles and those who were our fathers before we were ransomed and when we still lived in the futile ways inherited from them. God does not abhor any less the pagan life even if it's lived by one who calls on him as father. At one point in time, we were ignorant pagan children who had little knowledge of God's righteousness. All we knew then was futility. All we knew then was useless, meaningless, empty, vain, chasing after wind. It's the same word that the Greek uses to translate the, the, the word in Ecclesiastes for vanity. The word used to describe the nature of life as it appears, oftentimes apart from or devoid of the grand scheme of things, from the human perspective. A word that it also uses in the Old Testament to describe idols, idols that cannot even talk. So no longer. In Christ, the people of God know of the same God who judges the world. They know sin, and they know God's wrath for it. And so there's in, in, in inherent incompatibility with our new father and our old fathers and the life that we have that derives, as it were, from their loins. Formerly, no idea. Pagan life. Now, new father, new life. New way of life. New order. It's no small thing for Peter to call it useless or futile, these former ways of life, the, the ways of life in, in particular of our ancestors. In Roman culture, the ancestral religion and the way of life given by them was esteemed as the basis of all life and stable society. So one writer in the ancient world says this, more reverent and better to accept the teaching of your ancestors and the culture and the religion handed down to you to adore the gods whom you were first trained by your parents to fear. So you were to revere the culture you grew up with and the ancestral religion. That was what was venerated. That was what was trustworthy, tried, and true. But the redemption that, that God has brought to us through Jesus Christ and implies a very drastic change from that lifestyle, from the certainty of that stable society. And this, this word redemption can actually double in Greek as either redemption or ransom. 
It's a word the Old Testament frequently uses to describe the way that God ransomed Israel from the, their bondage in Egypt. He bought them. And what was the price that, he paid, that was paid for them? The blood of the Lamb. In Hebrew, this word is also the goel, the kinsman redeemer, who in Isaiah as creator himself assures them that he will be the one to pay, for their, pay their ransom. There's also a contextual understanding to this in the Greek culture. It has to do with purchasing a slave for ransom uh, f- uh, that was done by a family member or close friend and, and they would pay the temple this fee. The idea behind this being that they were now no longer slaves of their former owners, but now they were slaves of the gods and it was their order that they would now follow. So now we are not enslaved as it were, to the ways of our former ancestors and to the fear of the pagan gods and to obedience to them and their statutes and their way of life. And it's not just a few mistaken ideas that we've been liberated from, that we've been ransomed from, but the deepest lack of meaning of cult or cultural tradition. It's not just a few traditions, but a whole lifestyle that has been swept away by the re- redemption that we've been given in Christ Jesus. We are slaves of God, ransomed by Him to call on Him as Father and to be obedient to His statutes. Those ways were worthless. Those ways were futile. Those ways were meaningless. But we are now swept up into the glory of ultimate meaning, the eternal purposes of God in Christ Jesus. Before Him and before this redemption, meaninglessness, futility, uselessness, pagan ways evaporate and give way for all filled reverence of God and obedience to his statutes. And what was it that paid this price for your ransom that you might be delivered? Well, Peter says money is clearly perishable and that's useless. Money can't redeem us. Only the costly blood of Christ. This is our third point. Let's look at verse 18 to 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not not, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. What's interesting here about this is that Peter says that this blood of Christ, this perfect blood without blemish, was part and parcel of the eternal plan of God. This creates a contrast once again between the futility of their former pagan life and their former ancestors and and the ancient faith of Israel where Christ was promised and the value of his shed blood was foretold for thousands of years. So in a culture where ancestral faith was to be honored and venerated, Peter is actually making a rather pointed jab or point. These pagan faiths are new. These pagan faiths are useless. They are futile. They are idols that cannot even talk 
They're the new thing that shouldn't be venerated. But this Christian faith in the blood of Christ has value. And this faith that you have in God for which he shed his blood, this is the ancient faith. And you Gentiles are now swept up into the time-proven, prophetic-fulfilled word of God about Christ. This is the valuable thing. This is the thing with real and true meaning. It's not futile. God then reveals Christ. This is what's marvelous for them that he brought up earlier in the chapter. The word about Christ that the angels and the prophets long to know more about. God reveals Christ here and now at the end of time to accomplish the purpose that was theirs before the foundations of the world. And what was that purpose? That Christ would shed his blood as a perfect lamb without blemish, be delivered over unto death, to pay the ransom for us and be raised as proof of his perfection as the lamb so that we might have faith. This is marvelous for Peter of all people to write. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to both prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. That's the kind of faith he shed his costly blood for. That's why Peter can value this blemishless lamb's blood so much in in retrospect he looks at the failures of his faith and the fact that Christ himself prayed for his faith prying him as it were out of the clutches of Satan he knows that Christ was the promised Messiah of old the ancestral faith the faith of ultimately true value where our Savior gives this precious and costly blood for us and prays that we his people might have faith, as the culmination of all of redemptive history, you have faith. God's eternal purpose in Christ Jesus has come true for the sake of you. And here's the simple thing, the easy thing. All that he asks of you is that you reveal him in such a way that you keep his statutes. That you fear him in such a way that you keep his statutes. And when you think about it, that's not much to ask when we consider just how costly his blood is and just how worthless we are. Isaiah, uh, uh, Peter here is going to begin to interweave quotations from Isaiah 52 and Psalm 34 into his letter. Isaiah 252.3 says this, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Money couldn't purchase it. We were worthless. Sold for nothing, but he paid with his blood. That's a contrast 
of infinite value. You'll remember Simon the magician tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and he receives this response. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You can't buy redemption with perishable things. You were sold for nothing anyways. What's the price that can redeem you? The costly blood of the Son of God. The inestimable, valuable blood of the Son of God. And he gave his life and spilt his blood to pay for you. For what? For your sake. That you might have faith in God. A faith for which he now prays. So to connect this to the problem that the, 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 the churches in Asia Minor were enduring. What should we really fear that motivates our behaviors as pilgrims? Not social ostracism within our culture or government sanction as they were struggling with during their time of sojourning and exile, not fear and terror of them who judge partially. We fear the Lord who judges truly the thoughts and the intentions of the heart without any tinge of injustice. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly because no matter what happens, we know that we are in exile here. And we don't need to fear an unjust judge who may be putting the Christians to the stake in Rome and burning them at the same time. Certainly the the churches in Asia Minor had heard about that and wondered, is this coming our way? Well, we don't face an impartial judge with an uncertain faith, with an uncertain outcome. We fear the Lord who gives us far more hope for justice than any earthly judge in a legal court here ever will. And why should we live with fear by keeping his statutes to pick up the question that we, and, the, and the problem that we opened with this, this evening? We live with fear because he is our kind, tender, fatherly judge from whom there is therefore no, now, now no condemnation and who knows the nature and the purity of our hearts and our intentions. And there is no faking it with him. And even then, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. We fear him by obeying his statutes because he ransomed us from useless ways of life to live in accordance with his statutes. We fear him by obeying his statutes because the blood that was spilled for us is far more valuable than we could ever hope or imagine. Those three reasons. Fatherly judge. Ransom pilgrims. Costly blood. That's not just a list of do's and don'ts. That's quite a a compelling reason, I believe, in my heart for embracing with all our hearts a more reverent perspective on the God who orders our life. And that reverence and that fear manifests itself in all-encompassing obedience to His commands. Not because we tremble before Him as a terrifying judge for whom a verdict still awaits, but because He is our Father who loves us in Christ Jesus. He is our Father 
who loves us in Christ Jesus. That's a pretty good reason to think about the law of God differently than simply do's and don'ts. It's a pretty good reason to escape formalism and to embrace his law with all of our heart. Let's pray. Our good God and our good Father, what a joy it is to call on you as Father, who sees the thoughts and intentions of our heart, the sincere desires that we have to obey you. And so we ask now that you would increase our faith, that you would enable us to do just that, to obey you with all our hearts, to entrust ourselves to your care, to your tender fatherly care, and to recognize it as uh, grace. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.